Well, actually, it's brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know MMA ticket prices tend to drop right before the event starts? GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals, with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. And when I say it's easy, I really mean it. Even if you're kind of bad at technology like I am, the app is clean and straightforward, super simple to navigate, and when you do find a deal that suits you, all it takes is two taps and you are all set. So head to the App Store or Play Store now to download GameTime and score awesome deals on less-minute tickets. everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Well Actually, the Athletic MMA's podcast about MMA and other stuff. So do you guys and girls and non-binary friends want to hear something fun? Today is our 11th episode, which means we have made it 11 episodes further than I ever expected us to. It also means that my relationship with, well, all of you has now outlasted a lot of my romantic relationships with real life people, which is something that I should totally be discussing with a therapist. But hey, who needs therapy when they have their own podcast, right? Especially when you're a very TMI person like myself, who has no problem exposing the inner workings of their twisted brains with absolute strangers. And lucky you, that is what I'm doing for today's episode. Okay, well, not exactly. Calm down. I swear it's still MMA-related. I haven't entirely gone off the rails yet. I'm actually going to talk about Nick Diaz, or more specifically, that interesting interview that Diaz gave Ariel Hawani on Monday. I must warn you in advance, though, that if you have come here for conclusions or decisions or just hardline positions on the matter, you will be sorely disappointed in me. Just like my dad was, which is another thing I should totally be discussing in therapy, but I digress. Thing is, I do not come to you with answers today. Instead, I come with some questions of my own. Questions about how we deal with our public perception of fighters and our own personal projections, as well as how we, as media members, reconcile all those things with our roles in the public discourse. Or, in my case, how I don't really reconcile any of those things at all. I know it sounds a little abstract, but hopefully it will make sense as we go along. Or it won't, in which case I am sorry, but at least I got a free therapy session out of it. Either way, you've stuck with me until here, right? So might as well join me for another episode. The one that I am calling, I just have a lot of feelings. Let me start by offering you a little window into my podcast making process. It involves a few steps and you notice a bit of a theme among them. It starts with a vague but persistent type of anxiety. In a stage I like to call the, hmm, I should really start thinking about the next episode panic. It's an unsettling but usually hopeful state because we have fights coming up and that allows me to just tell myself, well, I'll think of something. The problem is when I don't think of something. And that's when we get to the second stage, which I call the shit, it's Sunday and I don't have a podcast yet panic. Usually less throughout the day. And it's an an interesting state because there is enough of a sense of urgency to make me nervous, but it's usually not enough to actually get me to act on it. So basically, it just leads to a counterproductive cycle of mindless procrastination. 
It usually goes away, though, after about 24 hours, and it gives way to a more resigned, almost dignified type of panic. The one I've come to think of as the, yep, that is it. There is no way I'm coming up with a podcast stage. But that, too, goes away. And that's when I get into where I am at now as I write this, the stage in which I am hit with a wave of overwhelming but somehow productive panic. It's when I mostly just let my fingers take over because this goddamn brain is just pretty goddamn useless, isn't it? And then shit gets done somehow. I finish writing, I record, and after giving me a few minutes of free counseling, our producer edits the episode. That's when I enter the passive stage of panic, which is when I just wait for it to come out and for everyone to hate it and expose me as a total fraud. That's usually when I look at plane tickets to Bali or Fifi and start researching how to make jewelry at home because obviously I will have to learn a new trade if I want to live a new life under a new identity. It's all very normal and chill and not alarming at all, just a regular gal with zero confidence and serious imposter syndrome going about her business. So all of this entirely unrequested peek into my insanity is to say that yesterday I was in the middle of stage three, the fuck this episode is not coming out stage, when I asked for help on Twitter. I asked for suggestions on what to talk about today. Someone suggested I talked about my favorite desserts, which was, well, not helpful at all. No one wants to hear about that shit, but it did get me thinking about salted caramel ice cream, so thank you. That was But the point is, I did have a few recurring suggestions, and they unsurprisingly often involved one name, Nick Diaz. More specifically, people wanted me to react to Diaz's um, interesting interview with Ariel Hawani on Monday. And I use the word interview very loosely here, because usually an interview involves a person asking questions and another person answering them, and this isn't what happened here. Instead, Diaz rambled, and Hawani managed to get a few words in every now and then. I don't know exactly how long the interview officially went on for. It was probably less than 20 minutes, but it did feel like a Peter Jackson movie, the director's cut. We all sort of reacted to it in real time because, well, clearly we are a very troubled community with too much time on our hands, and that's what we do. But what's interesting to me is that when people ask me afterward what to make of the whole thing, I just... I didn't really know what to answer. I mean, I read other people's answers to it. There were a lot of them concluding that Diaz seemed to be drunk, which is an understandable but still independently unverifiable view. Others argued that Diaz has always been socially awkward and renty and somewhat incoherent in general, which is a fair assessment, but the counter-argument was that it never looked quite as bad as it did yesterday. And that is a fair assessment as well. Some just went right ahead and flat out diagnosed Diaz with CTE because, of course, he did. As you may have noticed, people kind of love doing that on the internet, despite the fact that A, they're not neuroscientists, doctors, or anything close to specialists, and that B, even if they were, CTE can only be conclusively diagnosed when the person is dead, which is, well... I guess it's just easier to throw a blanket term out there whenever somebody acts in a way that they find erratic or even problematic instead of grappling with the complexities of human behavior. But in any case, I think we can all agree that it was an unsettling experience to watch, even if at some times we did get some glimmer of the raw brand of honesty that helped both of the Diaz brothers capture MMA's collective imagination. Like... 
For instance, when Hwani asked Diaz if he was happy and if life was good, and Diaz flat out answered that no, he wasn't, and that his brother had just been knocked out and that he'd had a rough week. There were moments like in this particular quote that I'm going to read next, transcribed by, bless his heart, MMA junkies Mike Bond. People copy me. I wrote the book and I was just being honest though. I tell no lies. How am I going to lie to all these people? I'm just pushing facts. It just sounded like gibberish when I was a kid. I might still sound like some type of thug life and that's why I get nervous coming on with you because your little collars and things. That was a very Diaz quote. Uh, in the replies under Mike's tweets, though, much like in everybody else's tweets in the MMA community, a similar discussion followed. Some praised Nick's quote-unquote realness, while others said that the interview was a train wreck. Hard to watch was probably the description that I saw more often. Some people somehow got from it that this would be the perfect occasion to set up a fight between Nick and Jorge Masvidal, while others argued that this was actually the perfect occasion to stop even conjecturing about a Diaz return at all. For many of those watching, this is a man who is clearly not well, and the last thing we should be doing is getting him into a cage. To that, I read a counter-argument that I'd heard in discussions about other athletes who were dealing with their own sort of public unraveling processes. That, for some fighters dealing with personal demons, competing is the very thing that tethers them to reality. That training is what gives them purpose and direction. And that it's when they don't have those things in sight that things really fall apart. It is entirely counterintuitive for me to see things these way. But as I keep reminding you, and also myself... I am not, nor have I ever been a fighter. And one of my biggest challenges has always been learning how to reconcile that knowledge with what I do for a living. Should I be worried about said subject? Should I make a point about talking about said subject? And if so, what is the right way to do it? These are the questions that I'm constantly asking myself. And often, I have no idea how to answer them. In the particular case of Diaz, I can tell you how seeing the interview felt personally. At first, it was kind of mesmerizing, like watching those videos of candles or glass or elaborate cakes getting made. You kind of know that it just isn't adding to your life in any way, but something just keeps you there. I made a few jokes, as I usually do, but then I didn't want to joke anymore. I felt bad about that. The whole thing started to feel a little sad, a little icky even. By the end, I'd certainly sided with those who have no interest in watching Nick Diaz compete in a cage anytime in the near future. But I still wasn't sure if I sided with those who didn't think the interview should have been aired in the first place. I wasn't sure whether that was exploitative or if it was actually a teachable moment. I wasn't sure if it was both. Or if it was neither, really. I wasn't sure if I was just reading too much into the whole thing and should just move on. But then you asked me, and I asked myself. And here I am, sharing with you not answers, but more questions. I honestly do not know why you put up with me. Pardon me for repeating an analogy that I have used in the past, but I do think it applies here. For me, the Diaz interview was one of those moments that kind of feel like Rorschach tests. You know, one of those situations that are so confusing and weird that what we make of it seems to have less to do with its objective reality than it does with our own projections and feelings about it. 
there are the objective realities and facts of how this can be an extremely exploitative business, of how exposure to head trauma can lead to long-lasting consequences, of how emotionally and physically draining fighting is, of course. But there's also a lot that isn't said or seen or necessarily known. And then we just have to fill in the blanks. And that's the thing, like, as a media member, and I will let Twitter decide whether I can or cannot call myself a journalist, since that's apparently the latest trend there, but yeah, as a media member, it is often my job to act on my own projections and to write my feelings. I guess for some people, the goal is to write as objectively as possible, removing themselves as much as they can from the equation. And we all have our own styles and goals with what we do. It's certainly not mine for anyone familiar with my work, but even for those who are more hard news oriented, who are driven by facts and stats, we all know that pure objectivity is impossible. It is, in the best of cases, naive to believe in fully unbiased, impartial, just straight-up facts writing, because everything from the basic topic that is being discussed in a story to the vocabulary used to convey it stems from what is essentially a choice. It might not be our own. It might come from our own bosses or the people above them. But something is being decided somewhere. And what we say matters, even when we try to say it as neutrally and inconsequentially as possible. As media members, that's something that we are, or should be, constantly mindful of. We help frame conversations. And remember what I said earlier about reconciling these things, or more specifically, about the struggle of doing that? It is very real. Interestingly enough, when it comes to the Dia situation specifically, I could have just opted out of the debate altogether. I didn't have to do this podcast about it. I didn't have to tweet about it. I didn't even have to think about it. I guess you could argue in some ways I am opting out of it since I'm not giving you any definitive answers or conclusions. But even that is a stance and one that I'm sure is going to draw some criticism from people. And that's okay. I'm opening myself to that by doing this. But even if I chose to talk about something else, something I felt really super strongly about, like salted caramel ice cream. The fact is that I can't always opt out of the debate, even or maybe particularly when it isn't as clear or as public as the Diaz debacle. Sometimes I'm writing a piece and I'll find myself struggling with the phrasing of a sentence that seems entirely simple, but that I know packs some sneaky meaning. Sometimes it is as simple as choosing between two words that don't vary that much in meaning, but that I know vary in context. I'll give you an example of a constant struggle that I ran into, and it's something that I've touched on here a few times. I have a tough time discussing fighter retirements. Just this week, I published a story on Shogun Hua, and it was about his reasons to stay in the game, despite having accomplished so much and having taken so much damage in the process. I won't go too deep into it. The story is up there at The Athletic. But the point is that my whole goal was to objectively convey this man's reasons for doing what he does. And even then, I found myself struggling with the way I phrase things. So as not to seem like I was glorifying physical sacrifice or contributing to an overall harmful culture. Before I reminded myself that I was talking about this guy who was 37, who was an adult man who had opinions about his own adult life. Shogun said that retiring is someone's personal decision. And intuitively, that sounds like a pretty damn obvious statement. But is it really in MMA? 
Isn't that one of our most constant public debates? And yes, sometimes it is framed in a shitty and invasive way, but sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's framed in the same way we discuss throwing in the towel or stopping a fight due to a cut. It is framed in the way that we frame an inherently violent sport that has rules in place to make sure that it's not entirely up to its main players to decide whether or not they have taken too much abuse. When I write a story about Shogun, I have to keep in mind this is a man whom I do not know beyond 20-minute conversations scattered throughout the years. Much like I do not know Diaz, nor what he's going through, and also I have very limited access to information in regard to his mental state, to his drinking habits, to whether I should or shouldn't be worried about him or his well-being. At the same time, I'm very aware of how much what we write and say help guides people's choices and habits. It's our job to give them not just facts, but contacts, so they can make informed decisions about what they consume and indirectly support. We help create and maneuver discourse. And in a sport like MMA, that is not a small responsibility. The stakes are high, consequences are serious, and that's a tightrope we have to walk every day. See, in my life, as MMA went from an interest to an obsession to my career, I went through all these stages with it. I had my just bleed phase, during which nothing made me happier than the Tarantino-like sight of blood gushing out of a cut during a guillotine choke. If there was some exposed bone peeking through, jack fucking pot. As I got more involved with the fighters and learned more about their lives, though, things changed a bit. The holy shit reaction to a shin landing was still there, but it was followed by hopes that whatever joy landed on wasn't broken, that they didn't need surgery, that they wouldn't have to be sidelined for I don't know how many months because that would mean not getting paid for I don't know how many months. And are you aware of the emotional toll of being sidelined can do on fighters? And can you even begin imagining if you get where this is going? I don't mean this in a look at how noble I am sort of way. Even if that jaw was broken after all, I'm still going to tweet holy shit about the strike that did it. Then I'm going to write about it. And then as the broken jawed fighter actually deals with the surgery and the recovery and the worrying about paying the bills at the end of the month, I'm paying my own bills by writing about the terrible stuff that they're dealing with. That's not noble. I don't think it's not not noble either. At the end of the day, most of us are just trying to make a living the best way that we can. And if we stop and think too much about the moral and existential conflicts of our everyday lives, well, society will basically stop functioning. What I mean by this is that sometimes I find it a little complicated to reconcile my viewing tastes and my job with my conscience. But then I remind myself that I am also watching skilled athletes put themselves into situations that they prepare for. Although there is sometimes the mismatch factor or the occasional past or prime fighter that we feel collectively terrible about watching, major organizations have standards. And the two people in that cage are consenting adults. There are many extremely important and valid discussions to be had about how the current system isn't kind toward fighters and how the idea that they're free to do whatever they want isn't exactly backed by the reality of the systems in place, but we can't entirely remove their agency either. 
Looking at a cage fight and just seeing two poor souls who don't know better or who simply do not have any other options in life is condescending and frankly quite insulting as well. And while I'm sure many of my peers have a much easier time dealing with these things, either due to their level of experience or their personalities or just the fact that they have good brains that aren't constantly crippled by anxiety and self-doubt, I would assume a lot of them have also found themselves struggling with some level of this throughout their careers too. So we're back to the question of how do we reconcile these things? In my case, I believe I made it quite clear throughout this friendly mess of an episode that I just kind of don't. I don't even think it's possible, to be honest. Instead, I just try to keep a few basic concepts in mind whenever I'm writing or talking or even thinking about these complicated things that I don't always have answers for. The first of them is that, well, I am essentially discussing a human being. The second of them is that I am myself essentially a human being and the third of them being that I am producing all this stuff for you guessed it human beings and that most of us except for the rare true psychopaths like Charles Manson or people who enjoy the comedy of Dane Cook can and want to communicate around the fact on a very fundamental level as absolutely corny as that may sound I can only trust that as long as we're doing that with as much honesty, empathy, and compassion as possible, the rest will sort of figure itself out. That really is everything I'm trying to do each week here. And while I will not always succeed, I can always take some solace in the attempt. Or in alcohol. That works too. Speaking of which, I am now off to pick up a nice bottle of wine to pair with my pre-fight week nerves. Tomorrow, I am heading off to Sao Paulo, where I will cover UFC on ESPN Plus 22 for The Athletic. Check out the site and my social media for updates on that, or don't. It's your life. I won't tell you what to do. If I don't see you until then, though, you can meet me again here next week, next Tuesday, more specifically, for more MMA and other stuff. Bye.